been listening to Redeemer Church of Denton's sermon audio. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit us online at RedeemerDenton.com. Well, like I said, we are finishing up our series today looking at the interactions of Jesus. And so throughout this series, we've said that the reason why we wanna look at Jesus' interactions is because we want to learn from him. We want to walk like he walked and live like he lived and do ultimately what he did. And so the first week, if you remember, we looked at Jesus' interactions with the lowly. And, and we observed how Jesus extended compassion to them and calls us to do the same. And, and then the next week, we looked at Jesus' interactions with the proud, kind of on the flip side, right? And, and specifically looked at um, some interactions between he and the scribes and Pharisees and kind of a summary of those things. And, and we saw how Jesus rightly judged them and encourages us not to be like them. And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' interactions with his disciples. And we watched as Jesus loved them and served them. And in the beauty of the gospel, calls us to love and serve one another with that extravagant and sacrificial love that he exemplified in that moment. And that that kind of love is then a testimony to the entire world. And so this week, we're going to finish it up by looking at Jesus' interactions with the state, okay? Now, what do I mean by the state? Well, what we're going to look at particularly is his interactions with Rome, the government in Jesus' day. Uh, but, but more than that, and even bigger than that, is I mean the kingdom of the world is what the Bible is going to call the state, okay? Okay. And so we don't have a whole lot of interactions uh, of Jesus with the state, um, which leads some to believe that Jesus really just didn't even care about engaging the kingdom of the world. It was kind of like, okay, I'm not even going to deal with that. But I'm not entirely convinced of this, and we're going to get into this in a little bit. But but first, I want to ask a question to kind of guide our time through this subject, and this is it. Was Jesus interested in politics? Okay, that's the question that's going to guide us. Was Jesus interested in politics? Did he care about these things? And the reason why I think we have to ask this question is because the the question and your answer to it is going to shape the way that we ourselves interact with the politics of our own day. And so we want to look at it as it can honestly help us to shape how we should rightly engage with politics in our day. And so let's look at a couple of uh, potential answers for this, okay? So first, first option to that, uh, or first answer potentially to that question is, well, perhaps Jesus wasn't political. And, and you see people will argue this, and, and they'll throw out some, some different verses. So one of those that, that uh, looks like that is Mark 12, verse 17 says this, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. And Jesus answers that when he's asked about paying taxes, Okay, and so you you have other things that he says, like um, the poor you will always have with you in Matthew 26, okay? And so it doesn't seem like he's got this big, like, social agenda to to push into the politics of his day. Um, He even one time in John chapter 6, verse 15, 
um, all the people who are following him, they try to make him king, right? To, to any of us, we'd be like, oh, yes, this is exactly what we're talking about. You know, you, you want to make change or whatever. They're giving you a platform now. They're going to make you their king. But he actually sneaks away from the followers when they try to do this, which is kind of confusing to us a bit. So he doesn't seem to have this great political agenda as we look at those verses, at least not in the way we would expect a, a normal politician to. Um, he goes around doing signs and miracles, and then he tells the people that he just did that, hey, but don't tell anybody about that, okay? That's, that's strange to us. We're, we'd be like, go tell everybody, okay, get the word out. But he's not trying to build his platform in the way you would expect, okay? So that's one potential answer. Maybe Jesus wasn't interested in politics at all, but then maybe he really was political, okay? Maybe Jesus w did have some kind of agenda here. Um, and, and this, I think, is, is significant for us because the very language that Jesus uses is provocative. When, when Jesus starts his ministry, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's a little bit different in John, but I think the idea is still there. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what is he constantly talking about? Repent for what is at hand? The kingdom of God, right? The, the kingdom of God is drawing near. The kingdom of God. In Ma Matthew 4, 17, it's the first thing Jesus is talking about preaching. Mark 1, 15, Luke 4, 43. All of this is talking about Jesus using this kingdom language. Now, when we read that, we don't think much of it usually, okay? We're just going, oh yeah, the kingdom of God, of course. But, but think about how revolutionary this would have sounded to a first hearer, okay? Let me, let me give you an example. Uh, this, these are people in the Roman Empire, the kingdom of Rome, if you will, who are now hearing Jesus talk about another kingdom. So for an example, imagine if you're up trying to go grab a bite to eat on the square. Maybe you're headed to LSA for a burger or something like that, and you're walking with your family, and all of a sudden you look over, uh, over there by the courthouse, and there's kind of a crowd that's gathered around this guy. And you're like, huh, that's, that's interesting. What's going on over there? And so you kind of walk over to kind of hear what's going on, see what's going on. And the guy is up there, and he's, he's proclaiming something. And so you're like, oh, what's this, guy, what's this guy saying? And you walk up, and here's what he's saying. Turn from your old ways of doing things, because a new nation is at hand. Okay? Now, if you are seeing that, you're probably going, all right, that's all I need to see, and I'm going to get out of here now. You know, hope thinking maybe the, you know, Portland um, Autonomous Zone's about to go down in Denton, Texas, okay? They, that's probably what you're thinking, okay? It's, it's a weird thing, but that's what Jesus is doing when he comes on the scene. He's saying that there is a new kingdom that's at hand. And so for the people here, now whether it's a Jew or a Gentile, okay, for the Jew in that day, they would have heard this as political because they have been expecting a Messiah king to come about. They've been waiting. And for the Gentiles in that day, they also are, would have heard this as political because they hear this as, okay, we're part of the kingdom of Rome, the empire of Rome, and you're talking about another kingdom that has come now. That's treason, that's not at all okay. This fanatic is talking about opposing Rome. And so, what is it then? Was Jesus political or was Jesus not political? The answer I think that we find is that Jesus had a different politics. 
He had an altogether different way of doing politics. Now, at the heart of all politics is power, okay? Who is in charge and what is their agenda? Okay, you can, you can simplify all politics down to those two things. Now, we've looked at some of the different passages where Jesus interacts with political ideas, right? Um, and, and I want to take a deeper dive into one passage in particular that I think demonstrates the difference in Jesus' politics. That, that notes that he was interested in it, but not the way that the world expects it. And that's going to be in his interactions with Pontius Pilate in John 18 and 19. That's where we're going to spend most of our time. If you guys want to flip over there, we'll be in John 18, starting in verse 28. John 18, 28. All right, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to him, take him yourselves then and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the scene is set for us. The the Jewish leaders have held an illegal and unjust trial the night before. And now they're bringing Jesus before Pilate. And why are they bringing Jesus before Pilate instead of just working it out themselves? Well, they show their hand. They want him dead, and they don't have the authority to do that. And so they've brought him in. But this is all part of the plan of God, right? Jesus says that here, or uh, John says that here. Um, And then also we find out um, through the other Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three different times Jesus predicts his death. And in John, there's two times that he predicts his death. This is part of the plan of God, a crucial part, the death and resurrection of Jesus. All right, let's continue. Verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Now, in John's gospel, we have Pilate kind of opening with this question. But if you look over in Luke, um, we get a little bit of the background of why this question is a thing. So Luke 23, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. I can just read it to you. But it says, then the whole company of them, that is the Jewish council, they arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And so naturally, Pilate asks the question, the first thing that he wants to get out of the way with Jesus is, are you a king? Now, as we 
as we look into this dialogue, I want you to have a, a, a picture in your mind of what's going on here. So, so imagine this. You've got Pilate who's in his fortress. He's in charge. He's the governor of all of Judea in all his regalia, with all of his pomp, and he is here on one side. And then you've got Jesus, who probably looks a bit like a peasant because he's been traveling around for three years with no home. Then he's been beaten. The Jewish leaders have already beaten him, have already hurt him. He's over here on this guy. He had, traveler, uh, he had followers who were traveling around with him, but they've left at this point. They've all abandoned him. And so you've got Pilate over here, and you've got Jesus over here. Picture that as we go through this conversation. And I can't imagine what must have been going through Pilate's mind, right? You've got this guy who's over here, and you're going, are you kidding me with this? Why are you bringing this before me, this impoverished madman talking about kingdoms? Luke actually talks about how um, he actually just tries to pass him off to Herod. Uh, right, he says this, oh wait, he's Galilean? Okay, let Herod take care of him. But then Herod sends him back, right? But he, he has to do something with this guy because the accusation against him is insurrection against Rome. He's claimed to be king. And it would look really bad if he just lets the guy off the hook without first seeing if there's any, anything to this. And so he asks, are you a king? And Jesus asks whether Pilate heard this or, or whether somebody told him, right? He's, he's on to them. He, he understands what's going on here. He's not fooled. And already we can see that the case of these Jewish leaders, it's pretty thin. So Jesus replies that his kingdom is not of this world. If his kingdom were of this world, his servants would be fighting to get him out of there, right? This is how kingdoms are generally brought about. One empire defeating another, Right? Uh, this is how Rome came about. Rome was the strongest, and so they came in and took out the opposing country, empire. Um, Eugene Peterson talks about this. He says there's two ways that generally kingdoms or powers come about um, throughout all history. There's the first one that's the manipulation of force. So that's militarism, okay? One, one nation coming in, conquering another one, right? Well, the second one is a manipulation of words or propagandism, okay? So they, they don't take them out by force necessarily. They come in and they speak language that's enticing to get them to do their agenda, right? To give them control. Or it can be a mixture of both, and a lot of times it is. But Jesus' kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. This is a kingdom that's not brought about by violence, this is a kingdom that has an altogether different source. It's not a kingdom of the earth. It's a kingdom from heaven itself. It's the kingdom of God. And so now we move into this exchange a bit more in verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And so we've got Pilate here going, okay, okay, so now we're getting to something. Okay, you, you are a king then. But Pilate has the wrong idea in his mind of what Jesus is talking about here. He has the wrong idea of a king and a kingdom. The only kind of king and kingdom that Pilate is familiar with is the kind of king and kingdom that live by the sword. That's what he knows. He's a Roman. 
And so Jesus redirects the conversation a bit. Here is why I was born. This is the very purpose that I was born to do, to bear witness to the truth, to show how things actually are. And Pilate dismisses this with a question, what is truth anyway? And though Pilate doesn't think much of Jesus at this point, he also doesn't see any reason for him to be killed. And we see that as we continue on. So let's continue on verse 38, the second half there. After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Pilate has heard the evidence, and he's just not convinced. This man hasn't done anything deserving death. And so he, he tries to please the crowd by giving Jesus a good beating. But he understands what's happening here too. The Jewish leaders, they're, they're trying to work it so that they can get this guy on trial. He notices what's happening. And so he's about to give them this free pass, the crowd, okay? Hey, I always let go a prisoner to you guys every year at the Passover. So do you want me to release Jesus to you? But they cry out, that they want Barabbas instead. Barabbas, an insurrectionist and a robber and a murderer. That is who they want Pilate to let go. And so Pilate tries one more time. He parades Jesus out in this mocking crown and robe. Look, I've punished this clown king enough. Here you go. We've all had our fun, but let's call it a day. But they won't be persuaded. They shout, crucify him. I find no guilt in him. If you want him dead, you crucify him. And then they say, anyone claiming to be the son of God deserves to die. And that makes Pilate even more fearful. Verse nine. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate's like, where did you say you were from again? Pilate's trying to get to the bottom of this, but Jesus doesn't answer. And so Pilate starts putting a little bit more pressure on, right? 
It's time to get to the bottom of this. And so Pilate says, you're not going to speak to me? Don't you know? Don't you know I have the power to let you go right now? Or I've got the power to send you to your death. Now again, imagine this scene with me. You've got Pilate over here in all of who he is with the power of Rome behind him, the governor of all Judea. And you've got Jesus over here. He's been flogged and mocked and beaten even worse than when he started. Can you visualize that picture of those two men standing, standing right there, looking at one another, having this conversation? Who looks in charge at this moment? Pilate, right? This is your classic David and Goliath moment. Pilate, with all his power, looks in charge. And yet, who is really in charge at that moment? We get this pivotal verse here in verse 11. Jesus answering him says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. All of this conversation has been building to this moment. With, and Pilate, with all of his power and all the power of Rome behind him, and yet he really has no real power at all. We see this in Acts 4, verses 26 through 28. It says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And listen here, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so this moment that we're peeking into, this conversation where we're like flies on the wall seeing what's going on, this is the moment when both Pilate and we as readers realize who really is in charge at this moment. And we see that in Pilate in the very next verse. Verse 12, from then on Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man... You are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. The Jewish leaders here, they have tried with all of their might to get Jesus killed. Okay, if you read the, the, the trial that goes on beforehand, they're bringing in false witnesses and, and they're all conflicting or whatever, but they finally get them to get Jesus to Pilate and then they're throwing all these things, oh yeah, he's doing this and he's doing this and he's doing this and Pilate is not convinced and so they throw their final card. Listen, if you let this guy go who claims to be a king, then you are not Caesar's friend because no friend of Caesar would ever let a rival king go. They're playing to his fear. Pilate is afraid of Jesus. We, we saw that in the passage, right? He doesn't like how this is playing out. Um, we see that in this passage. In, in Matthew, we actually learned that Pilate's wife had a bad dream about Jesus the night before. And so she tells him before he even heads into this, hey, I don't like this. Stay away from that guy. Don't, don't have anything to do with that guy. 
Pilate is afraid of Jesus, but Pilate is even more afraid of something else, Caesar. He's even more afraid of the power of Rome. He's even more afraid of losing the power that's been given to him. And so he gives in to the will of the people and Jesus is sent to his death. So let's put all this together. What are we to do with this now? We've been talking about how we actually see these interactions of Jesus and then how we walk out in it. Well, two things that I think we have to remember as we are interacting in politics. One, we remember where true power is. We began this talking about politics and about how politics is all about who's in power, who's in charge, and what is their agenda. And so in this moment, in our culture, if you ask the question, well, who's in charge? You might get, depending on who you ask, a number of different answers, right? I mean, you just have to scroll your your Facebook feed and see who people think are in charge, right? Um, I mean, the liberals are in charge, or the conservatives are in charge, or Hollywood's in charge, or secularists are in charge, or the world is in charge, or the scriptures even say that the prince of the power of the air is in charge, or the ruler of this world. And to an extent, I think all of these could could be argued from one way or another. I'm sure you could hear a good argument to an extent. But church, who is actually in charge? Who at this very moment holds all things together? Who at this very moment holds every ruler's heart in the palm of his hands, as the Proverbs talk about? Who declares the end from the beginning and accomplishes all of his purposes? The Lord. The Lord is in charge of all things. And it's a sweet thing to remember who is in charge. I'll give you all a, a silly little story about this. I, growing up, I was a pretty quiet and shy kid. Um, I think a lot of it at the base was kind of just fear, fear of, of others and fear of others' opinions of me. And so, and so that affected the way I went about my childhood, like at school, um, at Boy Scouts, other places. I mean, you would look at me and say, yeah, that's, that's a kid that is afraid. All parts of my life were like that, except one, soccer. When I was playing soccer, I didn't have that fear. I was confident, and I felt more free. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Are you really good at soccer? No, I was not. <laughs> so that's not what it was. That's not why I was confident. Actually, it was pretty terrible. Um, but what was different about soccer was that well, my dad was the coach. And, and Mallory and I have even reflected on this a bit, that, that my dad was in charge, and so I felt more confident, and I felt more free. Now, to be perfectly honest, I wasn't a Christian at that time, so me perfectly free and whatever, it actually just looked like me being a punk kid, whereas fear kind of kept that at bay in school and whatnot. Um, At soccer, I was free to be kind of a punk kid that was, you know, a jerk to some people. But but that's not the way that, that being in relationship and confident of our father is, right? 
The freedom that we find in Jesus is different altogether. Amen? The freedom we truly find in Jesus allows us to really live as we follow him, as we know that our Father is in charge. The Lord is in charge and the Lord has ultimate power over everything and his power and his authority looks different from the world's. We see this throughout Jesus' teaching. Uh, Mark 10, 42, um, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. The power of this world looks like those who are in authority lording it over people. That's not how the authority of Jesus was. We see it also in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? When, when uh, the Romans are coming with Judas to, to come and get Jesus. Um, and so Matthew 26, verse 50. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the, high, uh, the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Jesus wasn't trying to bring about his kingdom through violence. By lording it over. By aggressively pushing. Now Jesus' kingdom wasn't about violence and force. As we heard last week from Brady, Jesus has an entirely different agenda for his kingdom about proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Jesus' kingdom is also not about smooth words and persuasive words. Like lots of times as you read the gospels, Jesus actually says some really hard things that make it hard to follow him, right? He's not trying to just give you soft words so that you come and join the cause. He says hard things to his disciples and to others. His kingdom is different from the kingdoms of the world and it's gonna be built differently because it's gonna be built completely dependent on God and his power. And so, what are we to do with this? The first thing we're to do is to, we're to remember where true power is and what kind of power that it is. And then number two, we rest in that power as we see things happening around us. Now, we are not called to be a people of fear. You can look out at the world around us and there's lots of things that are scary but we're not called to be a people of fear. We are not called to live our lives in the anxiety of what ifs. And yet, a lot of politics is based on this very thing, right? Like, I, I'm thinking about elections and even the last one. And listen, this is, not, this is not me telling you who to vote for. Please don't hear this. But, but understand what's going on. You've got two different parties, either side you could honestly pick, going, hey, do you really want that guy in charge? Like, can you imagine what it's gonna be like if that guy's in charge? And then same thing with this. Do you want, you want that guy to be in charge? And I mean, you look at any of these, these elections, that's, that's kind of the power behind it is this fear of what could happen. What if he really got in charge? But church, hear me. We don't have to live in that kind of fear. Even if it's true. Even if it's true. 
We have a king who is in charge. And Jesus is not anxious. Like if you watch Jesus through the gospels, like if I'm with those 12 guys and I'm year three and they're still not getting it, I'm starting to go, oh man, time is running out and these guys just don't seem to be getting it. But Jesus is not that way. I would be, if I'm in that situation, I'm looking at the kingdom of Rome and I'm going, man, we've got some work to do. This is a really bad deal here. But Jesus is not that way. The Lord is not anxious because there is one kingdom that lasts forever. And spoiler alert, it's not, it's not America, okay? Um, and I'm not saying, don't hear me saying not to participate in American politics and that kind of thing, but I am saying to remember where your true battle is, to remember who your true candidate is, and to remember first and foremost that you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. There's a song that we sing at Redeemer that captures this well called Raise Up Your Head. I'm a worship leader at heart, so if I don't get to sing with you guys, then I'm gonna sneak in a, a lyric here and there. Um, it, it goes like this. The country's in chaos, the world's in distress. But when the earth shakes beneath you, recall the source of your rest. And here's the chorus. Straighten up, raise up your head. Your redemption is drawing near. Son of man, Jesus our king, in great glory will soon appear and his kingdom is already here. Most of us will never have to worry about how we'll interact with some great political leader like Jesus had with Pilate, right? Most of us aren't gonna get that opportunity. But we will have plenty of opportunities to talk with others about political things. In our normal conversations, certainly on that four-year cycle when things come up, okay, but, but also through social media. There are so many opportunities to engage with people on this. But my encouragement to you is to, as you engage in politics, whatever that looks like, recall the source of your rest. The world around us feels shaky at times. But in those times when, when we look at the world and we go, oh man, it's chaos, it's going bad. No, it's God's good creation that he has promised he will redeem. And so we get to move throughout with security and safety because our Father is in charge. Sometimes we'll look around and we want someone or something to fix it all, right? If we could just do this, then it would be better. Many times we look to those who are in charge, hoping that they'll do some good. But church, recall the source of your rest. It's not in the state. It's not people. It's not ideas. Your rest is in Jesus. It's in his, uh, him coming to reign as king in his kingdom. And that has already begun. It starts right here in us and it goes out in every act of light that dispels the darkness among us. And one day, he's going to come again and he's gonna finish it. He's gonna redeem his good creation. He's gonna redeem his people. Romans 8, all creation is groaning for that moment. May we be a church that remembers our God is in charge and rests in that beautiful truth. 
so that just like I was trusting in my father, confident because he was in charge and I knew I was gonna be okay, that we too can trust that our father is in charge and so everything is gonna be okay. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Oh God, we love you. We so much want to trust you with that confidence, knowing that you've got it. Like we don't have to worry, we don't have to fret. Even when things around us feel shaky, even when things around us seem really, really bad, that you are redeeming your world. You are reversing the curse from Genesis 3 and you will finish it. You've already paid the price through Jesus' death and his resurrection now is the beginnings of what is to come. And so we just want a part of living in that resurrection life even right now. Would you be so gracious to move in us that we might trust you like that? We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.